Pray with me. Father, with all humility, we thank you for a challenging word. We thank you for a portion of Scripture that defies our expectations. We thank you for a word that grips us and shakes us out of our numbness. And Lord, we confess to you that sometimes we compartmentalize our lives so well and things that would not shock us at all for some reason when we bring them into this arena where we do things a certain way, where we present ourselves a certain way. Lord, we ask your forgiveness because it makes us think that you're not in those other places. It makes us think that you don't go with us or go ahead of us or move around us in all of the other ways we live our life. And Father, we need to acknowledge that to you so that you will break through our pretends, break through our sham, break through our our lack of humility and teach us how to truly humble ourselves and serve you. For we need a king, whether we recognize it or not, and we thank you that you are our king and our Lord. And Father, give us now ears to hear, and I pray especially for me, I pray that you would help me to teach and preach appropriately. We pray this so that we may breathe deeply of the air of the Holy Spirit and we might truly enjoy life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If ever there was a chapter or a story of Scripture that just seems out of place, one that plays out like a comic book, then it's Judges 3. There's an adventure here in Judges 3, the story of Ehud, the lone one. He's like the lone ranger, but he's nowhere near as straight and narrow as the lone ranger. He's an assassin. We're skipping the story of Othniel, the first judge, because, well, it's boring, okay? I mean, just to be honest. I know, you're not supposed to say that about Scripture, perhaps. But we're going to say a lot of things today that will seem like, wait, we're not supposed to say that about Scripture, are we? Church, what I'm telling you is, there are Scriptures here that we have very rarely read. And I think that God places these Scriptures there to say to us, I am not a prude. I am not the God that you can put high on a shelf. I'm not made of, of china. I'm not made of, of, of you know, fragile glass. But I have created this world and I know more about you and more about the things in it than you will ever know. And so this word shocks us somewhat. For in the chronicle of Ehud, oh, there is, well, there's a lot of things and this is your warning. In 1954, when the U.S. Senate decided that comic books were contributing to juvenile delinquency, the industry created what was called the Comics Code. And they had to keep certain things out of the comic books, like graphic violence and crude humor. Judges 3, 12 through 20, does not pass the Comics Code authority. 
You can be upset with me, but as one of my professors used to say, I didn't write the Bible. It's there. And the story is there. And to avoid it, or to not preach it, is to, a dis, is, is to be inconsistent as a people who claim that we're a people of the book. I say, let's let the Word speak to us. Let's let the Word interpret us as much as we may try to interpret it. I'm going to warn you right now, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not just kidding around. There's some stuff in here that probably to most of us is going to seem like, wait a second, th- does that really belong in the Bible? Well, it's there. And to even mention it in here might seem... Well, a bit crude. There is literal, literal. I'm I'm not saying that for emphasis. I mean, there is literal bathroom humor. It has to do with a confusion about a bathroom. I know, that may be upsetting. I didn't write the Bible. I'm going to use that excuse as much as I can. I, I don't want to clean it up too much because that's not fair to Scripture. At the same time, I want to say to all of us, this isn't a license then for us to go out and be violent or crude. Hey, it's in the Bible so I can do this. Now, we can't do that. That's like people who think that Jesus went into the temple and beat up money changers, and so that gives them a right to run around and, and throttle people and act like a redneck. First of all, Jesus did not beat anyone in the temple, but that's another sermon for another time. He did drive out all the animals that they were trying to sell. And yes, he did have a righteous anger. But we will let Scripture be what Scripture is, and we will be the kind of people that God calls us to be. This is what we know going into this. Now, you've been warned. And so I bring you the text of the Bible as it is, starting in Judges 3, verse 12. I'll admit, the pictures are mine, but the words belong to the Bible. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and he defeated Israel taking possession of Jericho, which was the city of Palms. And and the result is that the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, the son of Gera, a left-handed man, of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to Eglon of Moab. So Eglon made a double Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped the dagger to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his cloak, under his clothing, and he brought the money to Eglon. Now Eglon, the king of Moab, was very fat. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. And he came to Eglon and he said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, Be quiet 
And he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as King Eglon raised up from his seat, Ehud reached in with his left hand and pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly. And the dagger went in so deep that it disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's guts emptied out. And then Ehud closed the locked doors, and he escaped down the tower away from what was the latrine. Ehud slipped out by way of the porch, shut the locked doors from the rooftop room, and then he was gone. And the king's servants returned, and they found the doors to the, to the upstairs privy locked. And they thought he might be going to the bathroom, and so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, it got very awkward. They became concerned, and so they got a key. And then they opened the doors, and they found their master dead on the floor. And while the servants were waiting... Ehud had escaped, passing by the stone idols on his way to Sirah. And when he came to the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. And then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. And so they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. And they attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest warriors, their most able-bodied men, and not one of them escaped. And so Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. The artwork in this project is artwork that I did almost 30 years ago. I did it as part of a senior year project uh, in college as an art major, not as a religion major. My committee that graded the project, they were all art professors except for one. Dr. Levine taught classical history, and he was on my committee. He was also Jewish, is Jewish. And whereas all the other scholars were focused on the, these ten panels that were telling the story of Ehud in this comic book form, this graphic novel form, all the rest of the scholars were paying attention to figure and to form and to shading. But Dr. Levine was paying attention to the story. And he asked me a question that I've never forgotten. He said, if you could do one more panel in front of this story, what would that panel have on it? And I'm not really sure how I answered that that day, but I have mulled over that question ever since. And I appreciate Dr. Levine asking me that question. Because it made me think through this story. It made me pay attention to what this story is doing. <clears throat> I know how I would answer the question now. 
the panel before all of this, before the victory and the triumph of Israel, before the embarrassing moment of Eglon up in the retreat, the, the, the latrine and, and the, the jesting of the guards thinking, boy, he's been in there a long time. That's a pretty good translation of the Hebrew. And, uh, and, and, and all of the, the, the grossness and the smells and the, and the killing, before all of that, there would be a panel showing that Israel was doing evil. What that question nearly 30 years ago got me to realize about judges, and it's something that is not recognized about judges, even to this day to people who preach and teach it, is that there is a repeating cycle in judges. And you're going to see it. You would, you would see it. You'd see it very clearly in the story of Othniel. First, the people, the people of God, our people, the Israelites, the heroes, they do evil. They do something that angers God. And because of that, second, they're oppressed by an enemy. God allows it. God permits it. Some oppressive force like the Moabites or this axis of evil with the Moabites and the Amalekites and the Amorites, they're able to descend on God's covenant people and oppress them. We'll get back to what oppression is in a moment. But the third thing that happens in the cycle is that the people will cry out. They'll beg God for some salvation. It kind of reminds you when they, were, when they were slaves in Egypt and they cried out to the Lord for help. And when they cried out to the Lord for help, He had to send Moses to deliver them and to save them. And once again, we see this story repeated. After they're oppressed, they cry out and God sends a judge to deliver them. He sends this leader, this deliverer, this hero, this champion. You will see this cycle in every one of the stories. Or what you'll see is you'll see this pattern and one of them won't be there and you'll notice it. Just watch in the future stories of the judges. It's sort of like a pause in music where you expect a sound, suddenly you get silence and you notice it. This pattern and cycle is there because it's telling us one huge story through it all. And whereas we can get caught up in the details, we can get caught up in the crude humor and get all worried about that, God is putting that in there. The story is being told as it is to arrest our attention and to make us pay attention to what's going on here. Because if this cycle could repeat from generation to generation in Israel... Where is that cycle the same for us, and where is it different? I love a good text like this because what it does is it doesn't answer all of our questions, but it puts us in the place of asking better questions than what we're used to asking. The judge that shows up at the end of the cycle, and we tend to think of someone holding court with blind justice in the background, the black robes, the gavel, you know, Judge Wapner, Judge Judy, Judge whoever, whoever you know, all of those. We've got Judge Ted. And so, uh, you know, but, but again, and I was telling Ted this week, I said, Judge, let's talk about this word judge, because it's not what Ted Knight and others like him do. A judge in Israel, this word is used as a bringer of 
justice. Not just someone who rules, but someone who can execute this justice. Somebody who can make it happen. For those of you who know comic book speak, this is actually less like Judge Judy and more like Judge Dredd. Okay? Because this is someone who can bring justice. And, and the idea of a judge here, this ruler, this, this governor, because other than Deborah, none of the other judges really rule. Deborah's the only one who has any kind of leadership capability. The rest of them are, are champions, warriors, uh, assassins, or Samson, who's just a, he's just kind of a, a big goofball out there who's stronger than anyone else serving himself. These judges operate on God's justice. They are his agents to deliver, to rescue his people. Not just for the sake of the people, but to deliver God's justice for the sake of the world. They're God's agents to establish his righteousness and his justice. And if we get anything out of this, what we're getting from it is that there is a particular view of the world where God is involved and he's trying to make things right. This cycle, this pattern, is a reflection, it's a demonstration of God's justice. And if there's one lesson we need to take away from this, it would be, it would be this. We cannot violate God's ways. We cannot violate His sense of peace and righteousness for the world without there being a reaction, without there being some sort of consequences. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this story of Ehud is, isn't it strange, and and here's where we look in the mirror and we may not like what we say, isn't it strange that we're more concerned about the awkwardness of the bathroom humor than we are about the fact that 10,000 people are killed and one king is assassinated by a guy who's supposed to be God's agent. I don't know. Maybe some of you are wrestling with that. And I hope you are. But I find myself undone by the fact that, you know what? I'm more embarrassed to talk about that awkward moment where they played it up for this kind of, you know, third grade, fourth grade humor, it seems like, than the fact that right there at the end it says, oh, yeah, and we killed 10,000. All of this killing. And who really wins? Do we stop and think about that? There's a lot of violence in this story. So much violence that commentators and other preachers and other teachers have often commented on the fact that they find it a bit offensive. They don't even know if this book belongs in the Bible. They're not sure if their faith can stand up to it. (laughs) Judges being such a raw, unfiltered world is saying, Do you think that you and your world are somehow a lot less violent? Do you think that somehow you live in a world that's a lot less violent than that? Judges calls us out and judges us and says, you've got a violent world too. This isn't just the strange, crazy world of people 4,000 years ago. This is your world today. Where you may see the most raw and egregious forms of it. With road rage and mass executions and ungodly scenes of destruction. But we have become very sophisticated with our violence. And we become 
oppressors. You say, wait a second, wait a second. I'm not an oppressor. No, you're not. Not you individually. But our ways and our systems become oppressors. One of the oppression, let's define it. Oppression is when the society or the institution, when the people or the culture support a form of violence against another form of people. One group of people holds all the cards against another group of people. In the Bible, we see that when Pharaoh and Egypt are oppressing the children of Israel. They are using them to make the monuments for Pharaoh, and they don't have to. They get what they want. These people are used for them. That sort of oppression, that sort of, of, of abuse of others does not just happen with an individual. It often happens with a group of people who engage in a system where that happens. Now, here's where Judges undoes us and judges us. We don't like that kind of guilt. We don't like that kind of responsibility. We all want to be held responsible for ourselves as individuals. Look, I know what I did. It's okay. Call my sins out. I'll deal with my sins. I want some personal salvation. But God is saying, you live in a world, a world that I have a vision for. You live among people, people that I have a vision for. And not only am I interested in saving you, but I'm interested in saving all of them, and I want to save the relationships that you have with each other, and I don't just want to heal single individuals. I want to heal and save nations and peoples. Read your Bible over and over again. God is interested in the salvation of peoples, not just persons. You'll see this when the prophets of all things go out and prophesy to other nations. It's funny that the other nations don't just sit there and say, hey, wait a second, aren't you from Israel? Go back and talk to your own people. What has that got to do with us? God's got a big agenda, a lot bigger than what you and I tend to realize sometimes. The violence that plays out in these stories is showing us that violence, even violence we may not realize, violence that we may participate in, it's going to lead to other violence. Why does Eglon get killed? Because he and the Amalekites and the Amorites participated in violence. Why do the Israelites get oppressed in the first place? Because they would participate in violence. You've heard the phrase, violence begets violence. Don't look for it in the Bible. It's not there in those words. Those words come from Martin Luther King Jr. But he's reading his Bible very well, and he sees that theme over and over again. In the words of Jesus, the king, you will see it expressed as, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Moab and Eglon ruled by the sword, and they are undone by the sword. The difference, the, the, the opposite, the, the, the other way of doing things besides violence, is justice. When justice is involved, things are being put right. But I'm going to warn you, we sometimes have stories that participate in violence, not justice. 
we have myths. We have stories that we tell ourselves. That if we're just stronger, if we're mightier, if we can deal out more death, if we can drop more bombs, if we can kick more people around, if we can bust people in the face with our fists, if we're bigger, if we pump more iron, if we can be smarter, if we can put people in their place, if we can create more policy, if we can write the right laws, if we can put up the right barriers, then we will be stronger and we will prevail and God will be very happy for what we're doing. Over and over again in history, sides in conflicts, both sides in conflicts have claimed that they have been fighting for God's ways. Even in America, in our civil war, the Civil War was not based on one side or the other saying, look, choose up sides. All right, we pick God, so that means you pick Satan. All right, we're with Satan. We're good. Both sides prayed to God. There's a story about Lincoln that, that Lincoln would say, in this conflict, I'm convinced of one thing. You know, because he knew that both sides were fervently praying to God. He said the conclusion is either we're right and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong, we can't both be right, but we can both be wrong. Only God is always right. And that's where God's justice comes into it. A text like this, a story like this, when you really read Scripture honestly, you're undone to the point that all you can do is humble yourself before God and say, God, teach me how to be an agent of justice, not a bringer of violence. Teach me how to participate in the rightness of your ways and establishing your will and not in violence. We're, we're, we're such clever creatures. We use the good and the, the ability that God has given us. And, and even in our worship, even in our life together, we can, we can turn this all upside down. You know, if, Sometimes our commentary and our thoughts in worship can become very violent. You're thinking, wait a second, where is that? We don't sacrifice animals anymore. No, but we sure do sacrifice worship leaders and we sacrifice one another. And ask yourself if that kind of worship pleases God. If God wanted us to worship in a particular way, somewhere between Philemon and Jude, I'm sure he would have put in the book of the order of the worship. And he would have said, look, here it is. And we would be bored to tears 2,000 years later. But at least we'd have the satisfaction of knowing we know which song to sing every Sunday. End of story. Done. And some faiths do it that way. Sing it this way. Do it this way. In this language, no substitutes will be accepted. But I think that the result that God wants is not a ritual and not the output of a ritual God doesn't want that because that just becomes a system. That becomes something that we use to oppress others. Look, we've got the ritual. Well, we've got the liturgy. Do it our way or you don't get to come to our God. Instead, God wants an output that says, we, we, back up, back up. We walk out of worship. And often our evaluation of worship is, you know, did, did everybody get caught up in that? Were there some funny stories? Uh, was the sermon too long? Was the sermon too short? Where was it? What's about right? Uh, did we do my favorite songs? Did we do this? Did we not mess up anything? And if we asked God, God, what would you think? How would we do on that? I think he'd be saying, I don't know. Show me how much you can love one another more this week, and I'll be the judge of worship. Think about that. Because God's not wanting us to just come out and be right. He's wanting us to come out and be 
just. He's wanting us to bring His justice into the world. If oppression is a form of violence in the system, another quote that Martin Luther King said about violence is that the weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral. It's never going to be enough. Israel knows peace for 80 years with Ehud. Why? Because he killed a fat king. And they killed 10,000 Moabites. Hooray, we've got peace. 80 years later, it expires. Violence is never going to be enough if it's just violence. Violence is weak in that it's a descending spiral. And Jesus points to the end of violence. The way that God has tuned the world, the way that he has arranged the world, is that there's always going to be a struggle for justice against what doesn't seem right and fair. If you've ever had that moment where you've said, this just can't be right, this just can't be fair, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, then guess what? You're tuned in to God's wavelength. You're picking up on what God is saying. You're noticing that there's some system of right and wrong in the world. Now you keep that up, and let me tell you what's going to happen. And I'm, mind you, I'm saying you should keep that up, okay? If you're not doing that, I encourage you to do that. But along the way, what's going to be difficult, and maybe this is why more of us don't tune in to what's right and wrong, is you realize, hey, sometimes I'm tuned in more to the wrong. I've got some of the hate that begets hate. I've got some of the contempt for others that's not good. I've got some of the anger that creates more anger. Yeah. Good. You need to notice that. Because when you can name that, you're one step closer to it being overcome by justice. But you, you on your own, you can't make enough daggers to solve the problem. You can't create enough weapons. You can't do enough on your own. You have to humble yourself before God. Surrender to Him and let Him make you into an agent for His justice. The cycle begins again and again in Judges because those people are really us people. They're people just like you and I. Maybe they live in a different world. Maybe they live in a different time. But they, just like us, have the ability to ease back in to the hatred, the violence, the fear, and eventually the evil that's going to oppress somebody else And the cycle's going to start all over again. God is inviting us to breathe in the fresh air of His Holy Spirit. We live in a world where God wants that air to push out all of the pollution. But sometimes when we're carrying around all of that hate, all of that fear, all of that anger, all of that sin and evil, it's crushing our shoulders, it's crushing our chest. And just like a literal weight that's on you and you can't open your lungs up enough to get fresh air, as long as that is crushing you, it's going to be really hard to get the Holy Spirit into your soul. But here's the good news. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords says, you come to me, you're weary, you're burdened, your chest is being crushed. Your shoulders 
are breaking. Your back is breaking with the weight of that evil. You come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you an easier burden. And when he lifts that burden, your lungs will be able to expand. Your soul will be able to expand. And you will finally be able to breathe the fresh air of the Holy Spirit. And he'll give you a new mission. He'll give you a new purpose. It's not just Christmas Day and you get whatever you want wrapped up and put it under the tree. But no, you get something different. You get a, you get a purpose. God has sent his deliverer, his rescuer. In the words, words that are ancient, words that are even older than the gospel event, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What is it that God wants us to do? He wants us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. You are invited today to walk. That means to live humbly with God. And He will send you on a mission to bring His justice. God wants us to do justice. That means He has the world tuned up in a very certain way. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to do justice, you need to follow the one who walks the path of justice. The invitation of Christ is extended to all those who are burdened and heavy laden. Let's give up our ways of violence. Let's put it aside. Let's trust in Him. We've got to humble ourselves when we come to Him and call on His name. For there is salvation in no other name. Let's stand. Let's sing this song about victory. And if you need to respond, there will be elders here, elders in room 100. Let us know how Christ can serve you today.